Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local lo- local news live via the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. State Supreme Court candidate Janet Protasewicz says that uh, said today that if elected on April 4th, she intends to serve only a single 10-year term. Protasewicz is 60 years old. The liberal judge also says while she doesn't intend on sticking around, she does not support term limits on the state's highest court, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. Her opponent, Dan Kelly, has not commented on his view of serving multiple 10-year terms. Protasewicz also told the State Journal that she would not recuse herself on issues pertaining to Act 10, the anti-union law authored by Scott Walker and enacted in 2011. She noted that although she participated in demonstrations against the law and signed a petition to recall Walker, she could separate her personal feelings from a case related to the law. Anti-Semitic incidents in Wisconsin have risen nearly 500% over the last seven years. That's according to Channel 3000. That mirrors national trends, members of Milwaukee Jewish Federation say. According to a recent annual audit, there was a 6% rise in anti-Semitic incidents in Wisconsin from 2021 to 2022. Miriam Rosenzweig, president of the Milwaukee Jewish Federation, attributes this rise partially to a challenging past decade, saying that during difficult times, people look for simple solutions. She says that the best way to tackle conspiracy theories and hatred towards Jewish people is education and community engagement. City and county officials announced today that the rental assistance program Dane Corps will be closing its doors at the end of May. Originally launched in 2021, the core program distributed over $75 million in direct financial assistance benefits to more than 19,000 renter households. The aim of the program was to support households facing financial hardship caused by the pandemic and to help those who were facing economic uncertainty remain in a stable housing situation. But due to declining federal funds, the program will permanently stop accepting applications on May 31st. Services to renters and landlords that provide legal representation and mediation, however, will continue. Are you making a request for records or correspondence from a state legislative office? They'll be happy to give it to you, if they have it. But the odds are they no longer have the records. And the reason for that is that legislative offices, believe it or not, unlike other state offices and agencies, do not have to retain records. Correspondence, research, and other documents can simply be destroyed when a legislator decides to do so. In response to this exemption from the state's open records law, Democratic State Senator Chris Larson of Milwaukee and Democratic Representative Jimmy Anderson of Fitchburg have proposed removing the record retention exemption currently afforded members of the legislature and would mandate that such records be, quote, preserved for permanent use. An identical bill was introduced in the last legislative session but was not allowed a hearing or a vote. And those are the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Top Wisconsin Democrats have sought to restore abortion rights, calling to overturn the state's 19th century abortion ban and introducing a lawsuit to repeal it. They've also vowed to reject any abortion-related legislation that doesn't restore the rights previously protected under Roe v. Wade. 
That's not stopping GOP lawmakers, who today announced a bill to create some exemptions to the state's total ban on abortion. GOP state lawmakers announced two bills today that would expand access to birth control and create some exceptions to the state's abortion ban. One of those bills is unlikely to become a law as Governor Tony Evers continues to promise to veto any bill that does not fully repeal Wisconsin's 19th century abortion ban. The first bill, announced by Republican Senator Mary Felskowski of Irma and Representative Joel Kitchens of Sturgeon Bay, would make birth control available without a doctor's prescription. Instead, a person seeking birth control through either a hormonal patch or a pill could get a prescription directly from their pharmacist. At a news conference earlier today, Representative Kitchens says that the bill would make access to birth control more equitable. Requiring physicians to prescribe birth control is a significant barrier for women to use birth control effectively, especially for women in poverty. And the medical community is nearly unanimous in their belief that birth control should be over the counter. Kitchen says that by making birth control more readily available, fewer people would need to seek abortions. The bill does include some caveats. A person seeking birth control would need to fill out a questionnaire and receive a blood pressure screening from their pharmacist. And a pharmacist could still require a person to be referred to a physician first if there's evidence of health-related red flags. Guidance on what would constitute a referral would be developed by various state medical and pharmacy boards. According to a brief released last month by the Guttmacher Institute, a research organization that monitors contraception and abortion policies, 17 states plus the District of Columbia permit pharmacists to prescribe contraception. Nine of those states limit prescription for minors, and in four of those states, pharmacists can refuse to prescribe contraceptives. Meanwhile, the second bill announced today would carve out small exceptions to Wisconsin's 1849 ban on abortion. That ban, which outlaws abortion in all circumstances, was made null after the Roe decision in the 1970s. But when Roe was overturned last year, Wisconsin's total ban again took effect. That bill, also sponsored by Senator Felskowski and by Republican Representative Donna Rosar of Marshfield, would create exceptions for people who become pregnant through sexual assault or incest within the first trimester of a pregnancy. Senator Felskowski says that while she is pro-life, she believes that Wisconsin law needs to catch up with modern medicine. Is this an ideal bill? No, it's not an ideal bill because we should be protecting all life. But this is not an ideal world. This is a world where bad things happen, tragic things happen, horrific things happen to people. We have 10, 11, 12-year-olds victims of rape and incest. Very dangerous for them to carry a pregnancy to term. It, it's, it's in the best interest to put these exceptions on there. The bill would also clarify what it means to, quote, save the life of the mother, the only exemption available in the original 19th century law. The clarification is a bright line that medical professionals have been pushing since last year, as they say the language of the original bill is too vague and does not clarify how imminent death must be before a provider can act.
under the bill, saving the life of the mother, under which medical professionals could provide an abortion at any point in the pregnancy, would include a serious risk of death and irreversible physical impairment for the mother and any circumstance in which a fetus has no chance of survival. Top Democrats, though, are unlikely to approve the bill. Earlier today, Governor Evers reiterated his promise to veto any abortion-related bill that does not restore equivalent access under Roe v. Wade. Democratic Senate Minority Leader Melissa Agard says she's all for making birth control available over-the-counter, but she's not supportive of the bill to create abortion exemptions in the first trimester. This feels very much like a political ploy with an upcoming with the upcoming elections in the state of Wisconsin. I know that, you know, having any sort of exemptions is unpalatable to the people of the state of Wisconsin um, and is quite frankly misguided policy making by the Republicans in the legislature. The bill also faces roadblocks from the Republican Party itself, with top leaders in both chambers signaling that the bills are unlikely to pass. And as Republicans appear unlikely to approve the bills, top Democrats are sticking to a plan to unseat Wisconsin's abortion restrictions by banking on a judicial solution. A lawsuit filed by both Evers and State Attorney General Josh Call to overturn Wisconsin's abortion ban is languishing in the courts. That lawsuit, which was filed in Dane County Court last June, has not yet had a court date scheduled, but is expected to end up before the state's Supreme Court. Democrats have repeatedly touted access to abortion as the main issue at stake in the state Supreme Court election, now less than three weeks away. Liberal candidate Janet Protasiewicz supports overturning Wisconsin's abortion ban. If elected, she'd likely be the deciding vote if the issue comes before the state's top court. Her opponent in the race, conservative former Justice Dan Kelly, has stayed quiet on the issue, though he's been endorsed by a number of pro-life groups, including Pro-Life Wisconsin and Wisconsin Right to Life. Both bills announced today are currently circulating for co-sponsorship in both chambers. In a press release earlier today, Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemahue of Oostburg said that the bill will be dead on arrival in the Senate. His counterpart in the Assembly, Speaker Voss, told reporters the bill would be unlikely to pass before the spring election. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggehout. Tonight we conclude our coverage of the race for District 3 Alder with Derek Field. A longtime resident of Madison's Far East Side, Field spoke with our producer Nate Wuggehout today about why he's running to represent District 3. The 2023 spring general election is less than one month away, and this year there are 14 older districts appearing on the ballot. One of those districts is District 3 on the far east side of Madison, containing the high stand and Rolling Meadows neighborhoods. Derek Field is one of the candidates running for the older seat in District 3, and he joins me now by phone. Derek, thank you so much for talking with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, just to start, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Who, who are you? I am. I've worked for a couple. I've worked for a couple of state agencies the last few years. Uh, I have six years of experience using data and analytics tools to inform and improve human services policy. I have my master's degree from the La Follette School of Public Affairs at the University of Wisconsin, and I've been in Madison for about 11 years. Before then, I was raised on my parents' small family farm in Blue Mounds, Wisconsin. That's out in the beautiful Driftless area of Western Dane County moved to Madison for school, and I've loved it, so I've stayed since. So I've been pretty active and aware of all of city business going on, and 
I'm excited to get to work on behalf of neighborhoods in the district. And now, Derek, why are you running to be the alder of District 3? I'm running because I believe that public policy should be a tool that governments use to support the community and meet people's needs. One of the needs that's pretty uh, important right now is Madison's housing crisis. And so my partner and I, two years ago when we bought our house, experienced it firsthand um, in a pretty real way. It took us 12 offers to get our house after we had toured probably 40 or 50 different homes. Um, So it was quite uh, a harrowing process. And the market is, you know, in a bit of a different place right now, but the supply problem is probably worse. Um, High interest rates have people staying in their homes, and I really do view this as an undersupply issue, as Madison is a desirable place to live and more people want to move here. So our population has been growing. Supply hasn't been keeping up, and so there's a lot of pressure on prices. That's on homes, individual homes, putting a lot of people our age, we're in our late 20s, in a pretty rough financial position if they want to try and buy a home, which is an important pathway to the middle class. It's also really hard for renters. So a lot of people who I know in the community are facing pretty steep rent increases and being displaced from where they live. And so, you know, this is increasingly a city that is hard to live in for people who are working, working professionals. They're having to consider leaving Madison. And so that's causing a lot of spillover effects and other social issues in the long term in the city. And I think I want to work to bring more housing to Madison and take some pressure off of home prices and apartment rents. I'm also running in defense of our uh, city's public water, our drinking water. So we're finding some, as many in the community know, some spots where there are industrial contaminants near the wells. And so I'm very interested in supporting the water utilities work to clean those up, treat them, and make sure that we have an adequate supply of safe drinking water and maintain public trust in our drinking water. I think that's essential. Now, we'll get a little bit more into some specific issues in a little bit here, but just sticking with you for a little while longer here. Derek, what what do you do in your spare time? Yeah, in my spare time, um, my partner and I bought our house two years ago, I mentioned. And so I'm very interested in how we kind of manage the lawn and landscaping around the house. We've installed two pollinator gardens with different levels of sunlight to try and establish a, or play our role in establishing an urban ecosystem that's biodiverse. I also really like gardening. We like cooking a lot and trying um, new recipes. So we do a lot of gardening. We have a community-supported agriculture share that we pick up right here in the neighborhood on the east side. So we do a lot of cooking, and then we like hiking and camping, too. We spend a lot of our summer and even spring and fall weekends out in Wisconsin state parks camping and hiking. All right, now I want to turn our eye on to the city of Madison. And you mentioned housing there before. And looking at housing here in Madison, what sort of key initiatives would you like to see here to bring more affordable housing to the city? Yeah, I think it starts with supply. So the undersupply right now is what's making people desperate to try and hold on to their homes that are harder and harder to afford um, and their apartments harder and harder to afford. I also support creative options um, along with reasonable development. I support creative options to add more housing. So that's in the form of accessory dwelling units on existing homes. There are some folks in the neighborhoods here who are pretty interested in that too, um, especially in the Mayfair Park neighborhood up by East Washington Avenue where the BRT line is going to go in. And so, you know, there are other options available through zoning tools like co-housing to allow some more density to happen here in the city of Madison. So I think those have to be an important role and the density needs to be supported by high-quality public transit, so service that is dependable and convenient enough that it is a viable alternative from single-car trips. 
And now you mentioned it there a little bit, but now I want to turn our eyes onto public transit. Now, bus rapid transit set to take into effect next year. Network redesign coming up down the pipeline later this year. How, how do you feel about those projects? Yeah, I'm a huge supporter of public transit. I myself ride the bus downtown when I commute. So I think it's an essential part of maintaining Madison's ability to grow sustainably and help people get around without the expense of a car, car insurance, gas, parking downtown, which is not an, which is a very finite resource, right? I'm excited about the potential for service network improvements by public transit and bus rapid transit along the major thoroughfares. So on this side of town, it's East Washington Avenue. Folks are going to see much more rapid service, at least for commuting downtown and at the expense of through neighborhood service. So that's the part I'm pretty concerned about. There are three neighborhoods out here who are losing their through neighborhood service as part of the network redesign, which is necessary to put together resources to support bus rapid transit. That network redesign is taking away service on Acewood Avenue through the Rolling Meadows neighborhood, Mary Turn through the Heritage Heights neighborhood, and Dominion and North Star through the Grandview Commons neighborhood in District 3. And so I'm hearing from folks there who are concerned that they'll have fewer options, that they'll have to walk a quarter of a mile on unshoveled sidewalks to get outside of their neighborhood in order to catch a bus. So I think that the network redesign, you know, offers some promise closer to major transit thoroughfares where people can commute downtown and then back. But I think it presents some new service gaps in our neighborhoods where people depend upon public transit as an option for them. And now I want to take a look at something that's maybe more handled at the county level, but uh, certainly has a lot of implications for Madison and especially the east side of Madison there. And that is the F-35 fighter jets, which yeah. are set to be touching down uh, later this spring here. How, how do you feel about uh, the F-35 jets? Yep. So I, like most residents on this part of town that's more heavily impacted, I'm concerned about those impacts. Um, we're going to see more noise. We're going to see added air pollution and, um, you know, particulate matter coming from those big jet engines down into the Starkweather Creek watershed, which already bears the weight of, you know, a lot of runoff from parts of town that are not super healthy for that environment. So I am, I recognize that it's happening and I want to make sure that we are studying the impacts and using data and information to characterize which parts of town are feeling those effects in air quality or in the amount of ambient noise in the background. So I think the city needs to pay careful attention when considering where especially development is happening and where denser neighborhoods or where families are going to be closer to the airport and more infected. So I'm, I'm an information guy and I'm waiting for the data to see how it goes because at this point it's happening and I think we need to study it and see if there's something that we can do about soundproofing or working with the flight path operators to see if there are alternative options there. Um, it, it'll be an intergovernmental issue for sure. Now, we've spent a lot of time looking at the, the city of Madison as a whole, but taking a look at your specific district there, District 3, what are a few issues facing specifically your district? What have you heard from potential constituents? Yeah, so people here are pretty concerned about some traffic behavior that they're seeing. We've got a couple of through roads that carry District 3 residents, as well as folks outside District 3, passing through District 3, where there are some spots that people are speeding quite a bit. So I live just off of Milwaukee Street, about a block away, 
And I'm on the corner with Kurt Drive and Milwaukee, um, pretty near that corner. And so we, we can see ourselves people racing through pretty haphazardly. And so I am interested in seeing some improvements come to the district that slow people down. Um, and that's in the form of those radar signs that remind you if you're speeding. I think we can all use the occasional reminder, myself included. But it's also network redesigns um, or intersection redesigns that make people slow down to pass through uh, an intersection. And it's, you know, in order to sustainably support increased population growth here on the east side, we need to make sure that we're not jeopardizing pedestrians trying to cross roads, bikers trying to share the road with cars. And so there will be a law enforcement component to that too. You know, the um, East District is studying right now and monitoring, spending some time per week on the East Washington Avenue corridor and studying speeding on Milwaukee Street. And so I'm eager to see if how they characterize the outcomes of those monitoring actions to see what the city can do in the future to make sure that people are not driving so hazardously and not jeopardizing the safety of pedestrians, bikers, and other drivers. So traffic safety is a big one. And now, Derek, sometimes issues get complicated over at the city council there. Now, let's say that you have an issue where some of your constituents want to see a policy happen, while you have other constituents who want to see the opposite happen. How, how would you handle that situation? Right. I would always primarily and listen to my constituents first. I think that's a really important job of an alder to represent the neighborhoods in the district. And at that point, I think, you know, depending on the issue, there may be additional stakeholders who have their own lens or expertise on that kind of an issue. So there are some human services organizations serving residents right here in the district who, you know, know the communities really well and will have a really good understanding of what their needs are. And so I would make sure to identify who has a perspective on, you know, what the outcome is of a policy being considered. And then I need to make a moral judgment about what I think is going to be best for folks here in the district. And Derek, do you have just any final thoughts on anything that you would like to to share with us here? Sure. Yeah, I think I would share that, as I mentioned, I have six years of experience as a public servant in a couple of state agencies, and I I'm very comfortable in the data and analytics space. So I use data and analytics tools to help inform policy questions. And that's, I'm very eager to bring that skill set to local government and in particular to help use data ethics to characterize which data are meaningful for being the basis of a decision instead of cherry picking data to suit a narrative. Um, So I know a lot of people are concerned about the use of data and analytics for that. And I am trained through my master's program in data ethics. I'm eager to use data for transparency to explain why I'm making a vote that I do or why the city is making decisions the way that it does. I think those decisions need to be rooted in evidence um, in order for stakeholders to be meaningfully informed on what's going on. I've been talking with Derek Field, one of the candidates running in the spring general election for District 3. That election will take place on April 4th. Derek, thank you so much for talking with me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. We continue our coverage of the spring general election with a trip to District 16, just south of District 3 on the Far East Side, where two candidates will go head-to-head next month to represent the district on the Common Council.
Kim Richmond is one of those candidates looking to represent District 16. Richmond spoke with WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt earlier today. The 2023 spring general election is less than one month away, and this year there are 14 older districts appearing on the ballot. One of those districts is District 16 on the far east side, containing the Goodman Community Center and the Twin Oaks and Lost Creek neighborhoods. Kim Richman is one of the candidates looking to represent District 16 and joins me now by phone. Kim, thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. really appreciate it. Now, just to start things off here, Kim, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Okay. Um, first of all, I'm born and raised East Sider. I was born and raised in East Moreland, and I currently live in the Elvium neighborhood, which is in the Far East Side, and I've lived in this current home now for 40 years. Um, my wife and I uh, have two kids who are adults now, very uh, successful adults, and uh, they went through the uh, Madison Public School System, LVM Elementary, Senate Middle School, La Follette High School. I'm a La Follette grad as well. And back in those days, it was Shake Elementary and Shank Junior High, and now it's Whitehorse. So I'm, I've got very deep roots in the, on the Far East Side. I am committed to this side of town, and I'm invested in this side of town. So I've got a long, long history here. And now, why did you decide to run for Alder in District 16? All right. Thanks for asking. Um, I'm running for Common Council to help address all of the needs in my district. Currently, we have an Alder who's not very collaborative. To me, uh, she, I feel like she's out of touch and uh, with the number one concern I hear in, in the neighborhood, which is public safety. She voted against six grant-funded police officers uh, who would have worked proactively as neighborhood officers in neighborhoods uh, directly surrounding each of our high schools. So I didn't understand why that would be. I am, uh, this kind of motivated me. Uh, people that I have talked to, and I've talked to hundreds of them in the past few weeks, I got motivated because they don't feel they're being represented. I will represent them. I will talk to any of them at any time at their convenience. And I am told by many, 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 many people that this isn't happening right now. So that's just uh, one of the uh, motivations why I ran. And now turning our eyes onto the city of Madison, uh, you sort of alluded to it before, but what do you think are the most pressing issues facing the entire city that you would want to address? Well, I will be addressing uh, community safety. I will be addressing the uh, rezoning problem. Um, and I call it a problem because there hasn't been a lot of uh, discussion with uh, property owners. I've been fortunate to own my own home here for 40 years, uh, uh, and that's a long time. A lot of people, if not most people right now, it's very, very, very difficult to own or rent property in Madison or an apartment. My daughter, for example, had to move to Janesville to buy her first ever home so she could afford a home, and it's less expensive for her to drive to Madison every day from Janesville. It's more economical for her to do that. We don't want this for our kids, and we're pricing good people out of the market. I'd like to add a little more on that, if I may. Um, I keep hearing about a housing crisis. We have a shortage, but I don't know if it's a crisis. We added over 4,000 units uh, last year, but what kind of units? They're not very affordable. Some of this uh, new uh, redefining family for uh, rezoning purposes, it's not really about the definition of family. This, this requirement is going to incentivize more um, out-of-state investors and more absentee landlords, in my opinion. 
Aries New Campus will be hit the hardest, to be sure, but this just is not an incentive for ownership. It's just the opposite. Um, it'll make it more expensive to own a home and limit the options. We have a city that already struggles with racial disparities, and this will make that divide much worse. And to me, it's a move away from equity, diversity, and inclusivity. Also, the BRT, if I may. The BRT is going forward, but it has taken some bus stops away from our district, and it is going to be more difficult for people with disabilities or older adults to get to these bus stops. So I'll do everything I can to either uh, get some of these bus stops in place or make it more accessible for these, uh, these folks. And now, Kim, you mentioned housing there, and I want to sort of dive into that issue here. Now, under current projections, the city is expected to see around 70,000 new residents move to the city by 2040. Uh, what sort of initiatives would you like to see to bring more affordable housing here to Madison? I would like to see everybody come to the table. We can't just have city planning go forward with these things. We have to bring in developers. We have to offer incentives for developers to, to build more affordable housing. We've got to look at other ways to, whether it's, uh, what am I thinking of, tax, tax incentives, or even, even incentives for first-time home buyers and, and people of color that have not been able to buy homes Give them incentives, lower, you know, maybe, uh, defer their interest rates or, or, or lower special interest rates. But with that many, um, people coming into the town, we need, we need the development, but we have to have an effort on everybody. And that includes the city, the government, the developers, the state to uh, all come together and talk about what we can do. And now another issue that I want to uh, talk to you about is is a little bit more handled at the county level, but certainly has some pretty big implications for Madison as a whole, and especially the far east side there, and that is the F-35 fighter jets, which are set to touch down at Truex Airfield later this spring. Uh, how, how do you feel yep. about the F-35 jets? Well, here, here in this district, the F-35s are, are a concern of many. I get it. I live here. When the wind comes from the south, they take off, uh, the F-16s were taking off over our house, right over our house. They're loud. They, they come and go quickly, but they go. It's, it's, it's up to, as far as like uh, uh, noise mitigation, I, I see there was recently something going forward with that. But it's up to the federal government and the Dane County government to help the city with uh, the people that are in the flight paths with noise mitigation we must they're the ones responsible for it the city we really had nothing to do with that and um you know we can we can uh protest them we can oppose them we can support them but they're here they're coming in another month so it's up to the county and the state to get the noise mitigation and regarding the PFAS, the uh that's a, an entire airport issue of course uh the same thing the federal government should be and the Dane, and the Dane county government should be cleaning up these PFAS around the uh, airport as soon as possible. The longer it waits, the longer and deeper the, those chemicals get into the, uh, the uh, system. So that's how I feel on that. Uh, we've got to go forward on that. They, they're here to stay. I, I, I appreciate the men and women of the military, and I appreciate uh, what they do, and I appreciate uh, how many great people they have working here. But there are, you know, with these issues, they've got to be taken care of by the uh, county and the state, I'm sorry, it's federal. 
Now, before we wrap up here, Kim, do you have just any final thoughts that you would like to share with us here? Well, I will bring more common sense to the Common Council. I honestly think there's there's just too much among themselves and not a much not as much among the residents. Yes, we represent our residents, but we are a mouthpiece for the residents. So we've got to have more common sense. We can't be having these overnight deals where the public doesn't have uh, much input and all of a sudden there's a surprise the next day, there's an amendment and then there's no chance for public to speak. I will bring that common sense. I will also bring collaboration. I wanna bring everybody together. I don't care what side of the political scale you're on. I don't care who you are. Everybody's got to work together. I've seen it in other cities where they work together and it works fantastic. We've got to get that Madison. We've got to get more public input and we've got to work together. I've been talking with Kim Richman, one of the candidates running for the spring general election for District 16. Now that election will take place on April 4th. Kim, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you very much for the opportunity, sir. I really appreciate it. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, say what you like about having snow on the ground this time of year, and I know a lot of folks are uh, pretty over it by now. But nevertheless, when you get a nice clear sky overhead like we did yesterday with dry Arctic air in place, The sunshine can be almost uh, intoxicatingly intense, given the angle of incidence this time of year, which is, of course, similar to the way it is in late September. So with uh, luck anyway, perhaps you got to enjoy some of that today. And I say that because there won't be a whole lot of sunshine between now and, uh, well, well, probably Sunday, really. Uh, We may see some broken cloud cover on Saturday, but I think a little more sun on Sunday. And that's because we've got a storm coming at us tomorrow and Friday, so uh, time just like last week, but uh, I'm afraid nothing near so interesting as last week, unless, I don't know, maybe you're listening up in Duluth or someplace. This system has uh, changed a bit on the computer model since I talked about it on the Monday morning forecast, and perhaps the most significant of those changes is the that the storm will not be cutting off at the uh, mid and lower levels from the surrounding circulation in any significant way and lingering over us. Uh, has had been prognosticated on, uh, well, days' worth of the global forecast system's model runs back last weekend and before. All the major models now expedite the system's exit to our northeast Friday and Saturday, so at least we will actually see some sun over this coming weekend rather than getting stuck under the clouds on through Monday. If you have a look at the uh, water vapor image of the continental U.S. with the pressure fields overlaid, which is up at the top of the featured graphics on the WORT weather webpage, You can see there over the past couple of days of the image, the deep upper trough that's going to be pressing eastward over us tomorrow and Friday, now just crossing the Great Basin uh, out to our west and starting to drop the surface pressures out on the plains ahead of it. Uh, You might note that there's a large surface high pressure cell out ahead of it over the upper Midwest. That's what kept us so clear yesterday. And it's edging now southeastward across the southern states and blocking off uh, much of the Gulf of Mexico in the process. And that's going to limit or at least delay the low-level moisture return so that the uh, modeling runs are now putting off precipitation onset here until, uh, 
Well, roughly mid or late morning tomorrow, although we might start seeing some uh, passing sprinkles during this upcoming overnight. But the reduced uh, thermodynamic prospects on the lead side of the storm have now made uh, thunderstorms quite unlikely, and a plain old cold rain looking to be the main precipita- uh, precipitation type. At least until uh, we get to about Friday morning behind the cold frontal passage. After that, we may see, uh, well, a dusting of snow as the upper air uh, cold pocket behind the storm passes overhead and steepens the low-level uh, lapse rates during the day Friday. The surface circulation will be consolidating and deepening to our northeast as it exit, exits at that time. So uh, the snow showers that we see on Friday will be blowing through on increasingly strong winds, which will also be delivering another dose of late-season Arctic air, which will give us a quite cold weekend, at least by March standards, mid-March standards. But uh, the cold will begin to moderate by later Sunday into Monday. But uh, back to tonight for the details. Passing high and mid-level clouds will, uh, on average, thicken as we go through the night. Possibly enough for a passing shower by dawn. I'm not expecting much in the way of precipitation, though, until we get into the day tomorrow. Temperatures will drop to uh, only about 40 or so on what will be active southerly winds overnight, up at 12 to 18 miles per hour. Lower clouds will start to thicken up as we go through the morning hours tomorrow, and a more steady rain will lift northeastward at us out of Iowa towards about noon or shortly after, uh, continuing there uh, from there forward into the evening. Temperatures will reach the mid-40s on southerly winds, which will lighten up a bit as the surface low pressure cell passes overhead here late day. Uh, then winds will veer west and northwest and ramp up steadily as we go overnight behind the cold front. Temperatures will drop to the upper 20s or so by dawn Friday with northwesterly winds starting to really howl up at 18 to 25 miles per hour as we enter the day. And Friday is going to stay windy and cold with temperatures holding in the upper 20s to around 30 and northwesterly winds up at 18 to 30 miles per hour. Uh, Perhaps starting to diminish a little bit as we go late day and overnight. The winds will be also fairly gusty during the day Friday. Snow showers will be blowing through at turns as well, with possibly uh, lifting and even some breaking, perhaps, between the snow squalls. Temperatures will drop then into the upper teens during the overnight, with continued northwesterly winds up pretty strong, 10 to 20 miles per hour. So that'll make for unusually cold chill values for this time of year. With slightly more sunshine on Saturday, uh, though with a good bit of passing stratocumulus as well, temperatures will respond to the mid-20s anyway, possibly a shade warmer. Northwesterly winds will stay uh, pretty fierce on Saturday, back in the 10 to tw- uh, 12 to 20 mile per hour range, with gusts still up towards 30 miles per hour time to time. We'll be back in the upper teens for temperatures during the overnight, with winds a little lighter that night, then back to about 30 or slightly better on Sunday under clearer skies, uh, but still with winds up in the 10 to 17 mile per hour range, backing a little more westerly by the time we get late in the day. And we will be slightly warmer than that Monday, back above freezing for sure. Temperatures are currently 44 degrees down here at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 31. Uh, passing veils of cirrus up at about 25,000 feet or so. Winds are out of the south at 14 miles per hour, still uh, gusting up towards about 20 miles per hour. And the barometer is at 29.93 inches of mercury and falling. As this year's mayoral campaign heats up, we take another look back at two pivotal campaigns. Here's Stu Levitan with this week's Madison in the 60s. All 
They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, the only liberal elected mayor. The mayor election of 1965 is polite but partisan and gives the city a clear choice between continuity and change. It pits conservative businessman George Hall, who ran both successful mayoral campaigns for conservative businessman Henry Reynolds, against Democratic Dane County Clerk Otto Feske. Hall, 64, is chairman of the Highland Hall Construction Company and H&H Electric, and president of the board of directors of Madison General Hospital. Feske, 44, began his career in public service as Cross Plains Town Assessor in 1946, and since 1953 has been Dane County's chief administrative officer as county clerk. A former part-time farmer, he's also a talented multi-instrumentalist who played with the Madison Symphony Orchestra when he was a student at the University of Wisconsin and was later a public school music teacher in Black Earth. The nonpartisan election has strongly partisan tone. Feske, elected county clerk six times as a Democrat, features a photograph of himself with U.S. Senator Gaylord Nelson in his campaign literature. There are numerous Republican officials among the 150 or so at Hall's campaign kickoff at the Lorraine Hotel. All the construction trade unions support Hall. Municipal employees go for Feske. The Federation of Labor's Committee on Political Education endorses both. The pursuit of the long-sought civic auditorium remains a major mayoral issue. Hall campaigns to continue the Reynolds record of fighting the idea of Law Park, suggesting instead a site near the Capitol. But he splits with some of the old Monona Terrace obstructionists by endorsing the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation as architect. Feske favors the Law Park site, but would support a different site if demanded by the public or recommended by the planners. The strongest support for a law park auditorium comes during the primary campaign from Republican attorney and former TV personality William Dyke, who finished third out of seven candidates. The candidates differ on amending the open housing ordinance, which former Mayor Reynolds pushed to passage in late 1963. Because it exempts single-family houses and some small apartments, it covers only about 40% of the city's housing stock. Feske wants to eliminate the current exemptions and expand the law to all units. Hall doesn't. Former Assessor Feske focuses on financial issues, warning of the city's increasing debt, and vowing to restore Madison's AAA bond rating, which was cut to AA under Reynolds in 1963. Hall calls for a joint city-county health department and wants to consolidate the villages of Monona and Shorewood Hills into Madison. A member of the board of the Vocational, Technical, and Adult Schools, Hall wants Central High School closed and its building turned over to his system. Both candidates support buying 40 acres at Milwaukee Street and Highway 50 for a full general hospital, and each supports the police policy of taking photographs at political demonstrations. There is little doubt about the outcome. Four years of Republican rule is enough for Madison. Feske carries 19 of 22 wards on his way to a landslide 20-point victory, about 25,000 votes to 17,000. A year into the Great Society, Madison has its first Democratic mayor since the first month of the Kennedy administration. Feske lays out an ambitious agenda in his inaugural message. 
settle the long-standing dispute with the right foundation over fees, and start a new auditorium process. Buy land for the Eastside Hospital, expand mass transit, improve relations with the university, and more. But two years later, he doesn't have much to show, and the city's turning sour. Taxes and crime are both up, college kids are starting to cause trouble, and the building trades are on strike. After winning by 8,000 votes in 1965, election night 1967 finds Feske ahead by only about 30 votes, with just one precinct left to report. Feske almost got to run unopposed, but attorney and former broadcast personality Dyke, who finished third in the seven-way primary 1965, enters the race just hours before the filing deadline. A former aide to Republican Lieutenant Governor Jack Olson, Dyke enjoys active support of local and state GOP officials, while the Dane County Democratic Party doesn't even endorse Feske, even though he had led courthouse Democrats for more than a decade. Dyke, 35, campaigns almost exclusively on Feske's spending, taxes, and purported failures of leadership, and generally avoids culture and crime. And he proposes organizing a group of experts to advise UW graduates with advanced high-tech degrees how to create, finance, and market new products. Feske cites at his primary accomplishment the recent acquisition of a site on Milwaukee Street for the long-sought Eastside Hospital, making progress on the Monona Basis Auditorium and Civic Center, and helping form the Alliance of Cities to lobby for more state-shared revenue. And he notes that most of the tax hike has been from the schools, not for city services. Feske runs moderately well throughout the city. Dyke wins fewer wards, but by larger margins, especially his Nakoma neighborhood. It all comes down to a final ward in University Heights. About 10 o'clock, the last numbers come in, and Feske gets his second term by just 62 votes out of 35,000 cast. Chastened by his political near-death experience and sensing the brewing tax revolt, Feske vows to keep the tax rate at $47 per $1,000 of assessment. I believe we can provide for our needs through the normal increase in the city's valuation, he tells the council in his inaugural message. It's a statement he will soon regret. Feske proposes a land bank for industrial uses and a new transportation commission, and he wants the council to create an advisory committee on housing and social services to plan community services for the city's growing number of poor and elderly. Having made more progress on the Auditorium Civic Center in two years than predecessor Reynolds had made in two terms, Feske also swipes at the, quote, small obstructionist minority doing a great disservice to our city by continuing to fight the project and says they, quote, deserve forthright condemnation. Feske closes his inaugural message by calling the narrowness of his victory, quote, a challenge to me, my administration, and to this common council. He has no idea of the challenges to come. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s for your award-winning, listener-sponsored, election-watching WORT news team. I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Special thanks to feature contributor Stu Levitan. 
Chuck Kademan ably engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Weggy helped produce it. And Shelley Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Thank you to everyone who donated to our Winter Pledge Drive. We came just short of our goal, and your donations keep this news on the air. If you didn't have the opportunity to donate or would like to throw in a little extra, you can still donate online at wortfm.org through Sunday. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night. WORT 89.9 FM, Madison.